Anyways, it's so good to be here. Do you guys realize that it's Pentecost? Pentecost is such a powerful day. It celebrates the coming of the Holy Spirit, and, and it's one of those days where I think we just remember the fact that we all have access to the Holy Spirit daily. This is something that I think we should be coming to church expecting. Like we're coming to meet with God and to be filled with the Spirit and to be empowered. It also marks the first day of the harvest. And I think that's extremely telling. And that's extremely important to recognize that we are called to be effective. And God is going to use us and use the church. Oh, this really fires me up. I, I just want to open in a word of prayer. And uh, I'm really excited about this morning's topic. Mark 14 is really, it, it's really powerful. And it's so culturally significant and there's so much to digest that we perhaps as 21st century Canadians will have a hard time understanding. So let's just pray and ask the Holy Spirit for direction and that he would enlighten our eyes to see truth. So God, we we invite your presence here, God. Jesus, I pray that you would just fill us with your spirit, Lord. God, we're mindful of the fact that the disciples, they spoke and in many languages that everyone understood, God. I believe that you want to bring clarity and understanding to each one of us, God. Jesus, we know that your word is power. And God, we we ask that your Holy Spirit would be here to enlighten our eyes and soften our hearts. Jesus, we thank you. Amen. Well, after Stephen, one of the first martyrs was just a boy named Tarsisius. And after Jesus ascended, they would often gather to take communion together. This was a powerful statement. And they would pray together. But the Romans wanted to stop believers from meeting. So they would imprison and kill many. So the believers, they dug tunnels called catacombs. And in these tunnels, the believers would meet and they would take communion and pray. But this was extremely dangerous, you see, because it created a lot of commotion in the area of the entrance of the catacombs. And it would be easy for them to arrest. And and one such occasion, an entire community was arrested in the catacombs. And they were placed in jail and they were separated. So they couldn't pray. They couldn't take the elements of communion. In jail, they wouldn't even be fed. But if they did feed them, they would make sure that they could give them nothing that even could resemble the elements of communion. Well, Tarsisius really felt for his fellow believers And he decided that he would bring them the communion elements. So what he did was he strapped them to his chest as close to his heart as he could. And then he put a tunic over and he made his way to the prison. And he saw a bunch of his friends, these boys, and they wanted to wrestle and play with him. But he was on a mission. And when they started to to pull at his tunic, he instinctively covered the elements. And they got surprised by this, and they asked him what it was, what you got there, Tarsisius. And he just prayed under his breath, Jesus, help me. And they heard him. They heard him say, Jesus. And they knew he was a Christian. And so they started to beat him, and the men surrounded him and started to stone him. And a Roman guard shows up, and this guard grabs Tarsisius. He scoops him up, and he takes him behind one of the houses, He knew this guard because this guard was a member of his community in the catacombs. He was a Christian. And Tarsisius was dying, and he said, It is a great honor to die this way. He gave the elements to the guard, and he made him promise to deliver the elements to the prisoners. Communion is incredibly sacred and powerful. 
The early church believed this was at the core of what gathering was. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to prayer, and the breaking of bread. It was one of the big four. And I think that we as 21st century Canadians have lost an understanding of communion because it is a profoundly Jewish concept. So when Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, they were like, whoa, buddy. They didn't get it. So many people didn't understand what he was saying. And even today, we tell people, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. They're thinking, what? How does that make sense? Why would he do that? And how does an event that happened 2,000 years like that even affect me today at all? And I think even in this room, sometimes we have an understanding that hasn't caught up with where our hearts are at. We love Jesus, but we don't fully grasp some of these concepts. Communion has its roots in the Passover. The Passover is one of the most shocking events in human history. The Jewish people were being enslaved by Egypt. You see, Pharaoh was getting afraid of the Jewish people because their number was rising quickly. There was 1.5 million of them. And he's like, they could overtake us at any moment. So this is what he did. He decided he wanted to reduce their numbers. So he taxed them heavily, thinking they would have smaller families as a result. It didn't work. So then he sent all the men to do intense labor work all day in crazy conditions so that when they come home at night, they'll be too tired and there will be less babies. The opposite happened. This is actually true. So then he decided he would do something different. Every baby that was born, if it was a male, they would throw it in the Nile River. Now, I want you to imagine this. This destroyed life for God's people. Husband and wives were terrified of intimacy at that point. Being pregnant was no longer a celebration, but a terrifying encounter, not knowing if the baby was going to be a boy or a girl. And just imagine having your baby boy thrown in the river. Horrible, horrible. And so God's people cried out, and God sent a leader named Moses to speak on their behalf. And he sent plagues. And these plagues started real strong. The water turning into blood. All of the fish died in these streams and lakes and rivers. And this was a crazy moment. They said that the stench was so terrible. They had to dig wells just to get water for their cattle and for their families. It stunk so bad. The second plague was the plague of the frogs. And God gave Pharaoh some authority on this one. He said, you can stop this whenever you want. Pharaoh stopped it. These frogs were everywhere. Bedrooms, bathrooms, kitchens. You wake up in the morning and they're on your bed. They're everywhere. God did stop the frogs but didn't get rid of them. Instead, they died. Pharaoh had to make enormous piles of them and they said it stunk horribly again. This isn't going so well. Then there's the plague of the lice. That's just kind of annoying. Then there's the plague of the flies. Then there's the plague of the cattle. All of the Egyptian cattle died but none of the Jewish cattle died. Then there's the plague of the boils, including on Pharaoh himself, who was covered in boils. Then there was the plague of hail mixed with fire. Whoa. They lost their crops. They lost many servants. Then there was the plague of the locusts, and they ate any crops that were not destroyed by the hail. But then it gets really, really serious. It's the plague of darkness for three days. 
And this was an extreme warning. Three days of complete darkness. This is God showing his sovereignty over the cosmos. Darkness is also a symbol for death. They would have got it. They say that the death and darkness was so palpable that people were going mad. They couldn't imagine what was to come. Pharaoh, through these nine plagues, would not relent. His heart was hard and wouldn't do anything. The last plague is the death of the firstborn. The same affliction that Pharaoh himself used against God's people. And he said that you must place the blood of a lamb over your door. And if you do so and trust me, that the angel of death, when it visits town, will pass over your home. That's where the term Passover comes from. It will pass over your home. The next morning, they say that the sounds of wailing in that city was overwhelming. Tens of thousands of firstborns were dead, including Pharaoh's. But in the homes of those who trusted, I want you to imagine... Your firstborn son turns the corner and you just embrace him. And it would have been a celebration in those homes. This crazy juxtaposition of the two camps would have been astounding. They weren't allowed to leave, but suddenly Pharaoh commands them to leave and says, get out of here now. Ending 430 years of captivity. And he sends the 600,000 men which would have been 1.5 million people total away. And they flee, they get to the Red Sea. We all know the story. Moses places his staff in the water. The sea opens. They pass through on dry ground. Pharaoh is so full of anger that he sends his army. And they are completely swallowed up by the sea and killed. And sometimes I think to myself, this doesn't sound real. Do you guys get that too? I mean, we've seen so many cartoons of this, haven't we? Is this the same as Toy Story or Cars? Is this just a great story, a fairy tale, or did this actually happen? Sometimes it's hard to imagine this being reality. The U.S. military has a satellite, and it can detect heat signatures, infrared signatures on the ground, and it's designed to know where the enemy has been. And when you walk somewhere, you compress the soil, and you change the infrared radiation signature of that area so it can detect cars, people, animals for thousands of years back. And they discovered this path that was one or 1,500 people wide, an enormous path. And this is where it went. It went through the desert, directly through the Red Sea and out the other side. An unbelievable discovery. They said, how in the world did that happen? And then the Christians said, well, have you read your Bible lately? We'll tell you how it happened. As they mapped the Red Sea floor, they found something equally as shocking. They found this. It was an underwater land bridge in that exact same spot. God had been preparing for this moment since creation. (laughs) So awesome. And as they sent divers down there, they discovered this. They discovered that there are chariot wheels there. There's swords. There's, arm, uh, there's armor. There's signs of an army that has been destroyed there all over the land bridge in that exact same spot. This happened. This happened. And God knew that we have this tendency to forget and things that are so outstanding and amazing. We have a tendency to disbelieve them later. So he said this. He said, never forget. 
he set up the Passover feast that the Jews would do every single year to never forget. He says, I don't want you to forget. Every year. And they would celebrate for an entire week. Now this celebration would have been so exciting. The highlight of the year. The Passover feast. And so what they would do is they would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And they were excited about this pilgrimage. They would pack up the family and they would take a lamb and they would walk with the lamb to Jerusalem. I can just imagine the family with the little lamb on the leash and they would just be walking to Jerusalem. And each family took this spotless lamb and then when they get to the temple, they would place it upon a table and then the dad would then place his hands on the lamb and confess the sins of the family for that year. This would take about two hours. And they say that he would usually lean heavily and place the sins upon this lamb and just put all the weight of it on there. And they would just press this lamb into the table. When they were done, a priest would come along and the priest would slit its throat and the blood would pour out and they would capture the blood in golden or silver bowls and they would pass it on to the next priest who would then pass it to the next, on to the next. And there would be about a hundred priests. And finally, it would end up at the altar. And they would pour the blood out on the altar. This was a terrifying and gruesome scene. I wanted to find a picture of this for all of us to just sort of understand what Jerusalem might have looked like in the temple. And as I Google image searched it, I'm like, oh my goodness, I can't show any of these. This is horrible. There was a youth pastor in town around 20 years ago who was also a farmer and was used to this. <laughs> Decided it would be a great idea to, instead of slaughtering it at home, to bring it to his youth group and show the kids what this might have looked like. It traumatized the kids. He actually got fired. <laughs> because it is gruesome and horrible. And I want you to imagine that there wasn't just one lamb at one time being slaughtered. There were tens of thousands the sounds of the lambs would have been enormous. The stench, the blood was absolutely gruesome. They say that a river of blood ran out of the temple into a river beside the temple. And after Passover, that river ran red for a week. Oh, this was horrible. This was designed to remind us how heinous our sin is. And how it creates death. And it's also a picture to point to one who is coming. The spotless lamb that the entire Old Testament points to. This prophetic lamb. And after this, they would enjoy the Passover meal. This would be a lot better. <laughs> this would be a place where there's not so many people and it would be with your family and you'd enjoy a meal. Oh, this is what they wanted. And this is where we're picking up Mark 14. So if you'd grab your Bibles with me. We're going to start in verse 12. We'll get to the first half of Mark later. So this is the meal that Jesus is celebrating with his disciples. The Passover meal. They're there. And they, they've done this since they were born. They've, they know that what's going on here. Mark 14, 12. On the first day of the festival of the unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. 
Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as he had told them. So they prepared the Passover. What's going on here? So Passover had to be in Jerusalem. But there wasn't near enough lodging for everybody. So it was a law that you had to open your house to people celebrating Passover, to the pilgrims. You had to. And so the disciples asked Jesus, they're like, Jesus, where are we going to stay? And he says, just go look for the man with the jar. And they're probably, you're probably thinking, what in the world? There's like hundreds of thousands of pilgrims here. Find a man with a jar? This would have been extremely unusual to find a man with a jar because it was a woman's job at that time. For a man to be carrying a water jar would have been very dishonorable and embarrassing for him. It would have been crazy circumstances that would have created this situation. So it would have been unusual. They would have spotted the man with the jar and would have known, okay, that's who Jesus was saying, and they went to his house. What I find so remarkable remarkable about this is that Jesus was fully man. How did he know there'd be a man with a jar and that that's where they should go? You see, God had been preparing this moment for them. And Jesus, although was man, was so in tune with what God was doing that he had this ability to know. And I believe that we, as followers of Christ, can be so in tune with what the Father is doing that this can be part of our reality too. We just will know what the Father is doing and what he's preparing. And we can step into his provision like this. Such a cool example. Verse 17. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. This is obviously Judas. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. So this would have been a sign of like intense intimacy and friendship to be dipping in the same bowl. Meals at that time were things that you shared with somebody that you had a lot of affinity or love for. So he's saying there's a great betrayal coming. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take this, this is my body. Then he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This was shocking what Jesus just did. For 1,500 years, they've been taking the Passover meal in the exact same way. The elements would have all been very symbolic. Everything that they did had to be done perfectly. It was sacred. And he started really, really well. Jesus started with the wine. This was normal. They each took a sip from it as they passed it around. This is what they did. They had four cups of wine that they would drink at a meal like this between them. The first one would have represented a promise from God that I will rescue you. There's four glasses of wine for four promises. The second, I will free you. The third, I will redeem you. The fourth, I will give you a future. 
This is what they've always done. And Jesus started it off just as they had always done. Then they drank the second cup. Okay, good. Jesus is following what we'd expect him to follow. Then they would eat the unleavened bread. And this was known as the bread of affliction to remember their affliction in Egypt. But here's what Jesus does. Mark 14, 22. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread, which is the bread of affliction, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. He is saying, I am the bread of affliction. He's changing the meaning of all the elements. He's saying, I am your affliction. I will take the affliction. At this point, they would take some lettuce and they would dip it in salt water and they would eat it. The salt water represents the tears of the Israelites in captivity. Jesus skips it. They would then take some bread and dip it in bitter herbs to represent the bitterness of their time in Egypt. Jesus skips it. They would then take some grapefruit paste and dip some bread in it and eat it to represent the mortar of the bricks that they had to make. And Jesus skips it. He skipped all of this. Because he's their affliction, he'll wipe away their tears. Oh. There'll be no more bitterness. And there'll be no more affliction. At this point, they would expect the roasted lamb, the highlight of the meal. You see, they brought their lamb to be sacrificed. Now they were going to eat it, and they're all excited. But there is no lamb. Where's the lamb, Jesus? Like, where's the lamb? He skips it. The highlight of the meal. And he goes straight to the third cup. The cup of redemption. And listen to what he does with the third cup. Mark 14, 23. Then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank from it. He said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He changed the meaning of all of this. He said, I took the affliction. And I am your redemption. He said that the cup of redemption is me. Oh, and he never picks up the fourth cup. The promise of our future with him. Instead, he says this. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. You see, we will drink that cup with him. He says, that's when you're going to drink that cup with me. Oh, he then exits the upper room walks through the temple into the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's arrested. And then he is slaughtered, and his blood is poured out. And Paul says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. He was the lamb. To watch a lamb being slaughtered is one thing. To watch your best friend slaughtered is is completely another best friends were there. His mom was there. His followers were there. They watched this unfold. The price of sin would have been so heavy upon them. Their understanding of the incredible sacrifice is amazing. When God asked Abraham to slaughter Isaac, it just sounded so cruel, didn't it? You read that and you're like, God, what? What are you asking Isaac to do? We're all picturing 
his son, that he loves, that he was promised. And God is asking him to sacrifice Isaac. How is that even, how could you do that? I have an atheist friend who said to me, how can you worship a God who would ask Isaac or Abraham to sacrifice Isaac? How could you, how could you worship that God? And I asked him, I said, do you know how that story ends? You see, God provided the sacrifice then. And in doing so, said, I will be providing the sacrifice later. Something I couldn't even ask my creation to do, I will do. It's so cruel and unusual for me to ask that, to show you the thing that I'm going to do is so loving and so full of sacrificial love for you. You see, the picture at the temple was the cost of sin. Thousands of lambs slaughtered. It was the cost of sin. The picture on the cross is that magnified many times over. The weight of our sin is enormous. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment upon themselves. I think this next part is hard to understand for us. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. Falling asleep was just simply a symbol for death. You see, our sin destroys us. In Corinth, they were getting drunk on communion. People would show up early and drink all the wine. Other people would be a bit late and they'd come to find that people were drunk and there'd be nothing left. They were sleeping with each other. And Paul says that one of your men is actually even having sex with his mom. That's what he says. And Paul says that when you do this, you're you're living in an unworthy manner. You're not recognizing the weight of your sin. You're not surrendered to God. You're living in rebellion. You're being hard-hearted, and it will destroy you. Your sin will destroy you. Sin has an incredible high cost. So often we can decode it, and we justify it. We forget the cost that it has. Years ago, I was having cable put in my house, and the cable man came, and uh, as he was putting in the cable, he asked me what I did for a living, and I said, well, I'm a youth pastor, and I run a summer camp. And he continued on his work. And then the guy just started weeping. And then he sat down in the chair and and I said, man, do you want a cup of coffee? And we drank coffee together. And this is what he said. He said, I used to go to Bible camp when I was a kid. He said, and then one summer it started where the director of the camp started taking advantage of me. And he went into this story and he said, it wrecked my life. It destroyed me. It destroyed my faith in God entirely. And then he said, can you make another appointment for cable? The work here is done, but can I come back? And he came back, and we actually prayed for the man who had hurt him. See, no one is too far gone. The man in Corinth who was sleeping with his mom, when you read in 2 Corinthians, he's completely restored, and he repents of his sin, And he is redeemed. You see, Jesus is the bread of affliction in that he takes the destruction that sin causes. 
He takes our affliction away because sin does lead to affliction in us. He removes it from us. He takes the poison from the wound. And in doing so is the cup of redemption. You see, communion is power because sin is deceptive. In communion, we, re- we ask God to reveal the cost of sin and to reveal our blindness to sin that we might have. We fall into sin really slowly, really innocently at first. The communion reveals the cost of sin and it allows us to move away from it. We examine ourselves and the Holy Spirit is present and points out the sin that will cause affliction to us. And when we repent of it, Jesus takes that affliction from us. John Lake, who I spoke to you guys about, was at the forefront of the Spokane revivals. 100,000 confirmed healings. Unbelievable. John Lake said that the most powerful tool that they have and that they used was communion. He says, we receive healing and redemption every single time we take communion. It's a very powerful invitation to the presence of God. It's a very powerful invitation to him to reveal sin in our lives so he can remove the affliction. There was a girl who was a part of a youth group. She was a youth leader on the way to Israel. And she went unconscious in the airplane. And by the time they showed up to Israel, she was um, foaming at the mouth. And they brought her to the hospital and she had deep vein thrombosis and, and she was dying. She was in a coma. She had blood clots in her brain and in her lungs. And for six days, she laid there in a coma. And her team was there praying for her constantly. And on the sixth day, the husband said, let's just take communion together. And in that room, they took communion. They took the elements. They confessed the sin that they had. They allowed the Holy Spirit to come and just be their Lord. And to just highlight areas in their life where they took sin so lightly. And then they celebrated their new life in Christ. And then she woke up and was completely restored and healed. You see, communion is inviting his lordship in our lives. It's simply saying, my life is yours. Your lordship is present in my life. You're not just my savior. You're my lord and savior. It's surrendering everything turning from the sin that we maybe didn't see as being a big deal and making a massive turn. The beginning of Mark 14, before this Passover feast with Jesus, we see an incredible example of this. Jesus is invited to a Pharisee's house for dinner. And you have to understand that houses in that time weren't like they are in Canada. It's pretty warm in the Middle East for one thing. So lots of it would be indoor-outdoor. And so often they would have a place where they would eat that would be more like a patio or a deck. And so Jesus is reclining on these enormous cushions with the Pharisees, and they're eating a meal, and people can walk by and just see what's going on. And as they're eating this meal, a well-known prostitute shows up and actually goes onto the deck. The Pharisees are like, oh my goodness, look who it is. Like, this is crazy. And she falls at the feet of Jesus and begins to weep. And as her tears fall, they make streaks on his feet because they haven't been washed. 
This was extremely dishonorable. You see, you honor a guest at that time by washing their feet when they enter your home. The Pharisee showed no honor to Jesus. She begins to wash his feet with her tears, and then she takes her hair down. This would have been a sign of absolute crazy intimacy. And she dries her feet with his hair. The story gets crazier. She pulls out a bottle of perfume. Now, this bottle was made of alabaster. Alabaster was extremely expensive. Only the very wealthy had it. It was like a a clear crystal glass. And it was mined in a town called Alabaster. It was worth a fortune, this bottle. It obviously was an heirloom that was passed down to her. They're probably thinking, how did she get that? And inside of this, she had perfume called nard. Now, this nard was also worth a fortune, probably in the range of a year's wage. They used it to anoint kings. Really expensive. One dab would anoint a king. One dab. But because she was a prostitute, she needed this. Men expected that prostitutes had perfume. You couldn't be a prostitute without perfume. She takes the perfume and she dumps the entire bottle upon Jesus. The Pharisees lose their minds. She then takes this alabaster jar and she smashes it on the ground. (sighs) Jesus says this, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You might ask yourself, how was this faith You see, she's going all in. She's turning from her sin. This was her security. Now she's saying, Jesus, you're my security. Her alabaster jar. She could have sold it and got by for a long time. She's saying, now it's completely you. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom and I'll take care of everything. She's trusting him. But secondly, she can no longer be a prostitute. She poured it all out. She's turning from her sin, completely repenting, going all in. She is saying, I can never go back to the sin that caused me affliction. Oh, she's denying herself. Jesus said that if you want to find life, you must lose it for my sake. In other words, I'm your Lord. She's doing that. She's dying to self. There's an ISIS recruiting video. And this man gets really close to the camera and he points at his audience and he says this. I know you have an emptiness. You have a deep satisfaction. He says, you need something worth dying for. And I completely agree with that statement. And this is the very call of Jesus. You see, Muhammad, he died and he stayed dead, didn't he? Jesus died and he resurrected. And on Pentecost, he came to earth and made us powerful. And he says this, if you deny yourself, you will find life. And so communion is inviting the very presence of God. Communion is an encounter with him. Where we put everything on the line. And just like the prostitute, we smash our metaphorical alabaster jars and we pour out our nard. All the things that we turn back to, all of our sin, we say, they're part of my past. I'm completely repenting. You see, we've been robbed of the power of this symbol. In the Old Testament, bread was a symbol for his presence. They called it the bread of his presence. In Exodus 25, 
This was a common use of this term. We see this all throughout the Old Testament. It says, put the bread of the presence on this table to be before the meal at all times. The bread of the presence is what Jesus was saying, you get to do whenever you gather. Invite me into your meeting. Invite my presence. Turn from your sin. Recognize the cost of it, the weight of it. And we live in a time where these symbols are so far removed. The sacrifice of the temple was thousands of years ago. Jesus' death was thousands of years ago. So when we gather, and when we take the bread and the cup, what we're doing is this. We're inviting the Holy Spirit to examine us, to reveal sin, and then we walk away from it. So we're going to make this sacred space right now. We're going to do communion quite a bit differently this morning than usual. I'm going to invite you, if you're down in this bottom area, to come forward and take the cup and the bread and go back to your seat and just enjoy the presence of God. And when you are ready and after you have repented of sin, you've broken the alabaster jar, poured out the nard and said, I'm not going back, then take part when you are ready by yourself. The same can be said for the balcony, but it will be served to you up there. It's too hard to move around, but you can still take it after you've examined yourself. We're going to make this sacred space. We're going to just really bring back the sacredness and power of this symbol right now in this moment. The Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, and I believe he wants to come now. You got to believe and understand that the, the Passover was a celebration. It was the pinnacle of their calendar, and in this place, we're going to have a celebration because he took our affliction and becomes our redemption and we can walk in freedom. No more bitterness. Oh, no more tears. No more affliction. We're the very children of the almighty God. Amen. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite the ushers forward and we're going to do two songs and I invite you to come forward during any part of these two songs and then go back to your seat and take part in that when that works for you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your love for us. I'm reminded of the words of John the Baptist when he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Oh, Jesus, thank you. Thank you, Jesus, that you have delivered us from death. Thank you, Jesus, that you've delivered us from affliction, that you love us so much. God, I pray that as we take part, that your Holy Spirit would just reveal areas of blindness to us, God, so we can walk in freedom and truth, God. God, through your Apostle Paul, you said that our sin will make us sick and even create death. Jesus, help us hate our sin. God, for those of us who are caught up God, I pray that you would just by your spirit convict us right now, God, and then free us. God, for those of us who are caught up in pornography, perhaps adultery, 
drug abuse, Lord, alcohol abuse, gossip, slander, envy, gluttony, stealing, cheating. I pray that your Holy Spirit would just reveal those to us, God. Give us the courage to turn from our sin so that we can be saved and walk in freedom, God. Jesus, we thank you for your word that sets us free. Father, we love you and we love your presence. Amen.